If you've got a Bible, uh, you can turn to Ruth chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. We're working our way through the book of Ruth together over the course of these last couple of months and up through Thanksgiving. And so we continue to kind of chew through that book together, uh, sometimes stopping down in text for a couple of weeks in a row just because there's more there than I can get to in one week. Um, and so that seems to be the case again this morning, uh, finishing up chapter 2 this morning as we looked, took a look at it last week as well. But let's read that text in front of us in chapter 2 of Ruth and then we'll unpack it together. And Ruth chapter 2 begins this way. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge." Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you work today? And where, uh, where did you glean? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. 
And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. William Cooper was the name of a gentleman in the 19, uh, 1770s, excuse me, who was a hymn writer and English poet. Uh, he wrote a number of hymns, but uh, throughout the course of his life, he struggled frequently, frequently with depressive episodes. Uh, depressive episodes that were so extreme at times that he was diagnosed with insanity and institutionalized. On three occasions, Cooper attempted suicide. He was unsuccessful in each occasion. And after his institutionalization and he recovered from that diagnosis of insanity, he continued to write. He continued to write poetry and he continued to write hymnody. And one of the hymns that he wrote was a hymn that I cited a couple of weeks ago. It was a hymn written in 1779 called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And there are six verses to this hymn that Cooper wrote. And the first and last one read like this. And the first verse says, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. In the ancient literature, the sea was a place of chaos and turmoil and uncertainty. And God says he plants his foot. It's stable as he plants it upon the seas. And he rides, he rides into town on the storm at times. So there are times in which God's working and moving in which things, things seem really cloudy and really stormy in our lives, Cooper says. And then the last verse, he says this. He says, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. In other words, if you look at what God is doing and trying to discern his purposes in your life with, through the eyes of unbelief, that God is good, that God is loving, that God is gracious, and that God is sovereign, if you don't acknowledge those things, but you look at the circumstances of your life through blind unbelief, he said, you're sure to find yourself in error. And you will try and consider what God is doing or what's going on in your life, and it will all be in vain. But then he says this, God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. In other words, God reserves the right to interpret his purposes for himself, is what Cooper says. And he will make it plain. Now don't you wish sometimes in the middle of staring through the windshield of life that God would make it a little more plain than he does? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I find myself in that situation at times. I wish God would make it plain here and now. But for whatever reason, in God's providence and according to his purposes, he reserves the right to make it plain for us one day. Whether that be a day before we breathe our last breath here on the face of the earth, or whether that be a day in which we're standing in his presence in all of his glory, surrounded by the angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That one day it will be made plain, whether it be on, in this life or the life to come, but oftentimes for those of us who are living life, who are living the story, not reading the story, right? It's one thing to read the story and begin to see God making it plain, how his purposes are at work. Whenever you read someone else's story, it's another thing to live the story yourself and try and discern what God is doing. One day he will make it plain. It may not be in this life and we may have to wait until the life to come. But in Ruth, at this point in the book of Ruth, what you begin to see is God beginning to make plain his purposes and how he is working behind the scenes, how he's riding on the storm, how his foot is planted upon the sea, 
how God is working through all of this chaos to bring this story to a beautiful resolution, you begin to see God making it plain in Ruth's life. And that's what we want to see this morning. Because I hope that through seeing God make it plain in her life, it will bring you a little encouragement whenever things seem to be very unclear in yours. I don't know about you, but I find that to be true in my own experience. So whenever I see God working in the life of someone else and I can see things unfolding and I see things coming together for someone else, if you're a person of faith in the room this morning, then it encourages you because you know that that's God behind the scenes unfolding all of those things. That's not mere chance, it's not fate, it's not happenstance, but it's God in his providence. And so how does God begin to make it plain in Ruth's life, what he is doing? And here's what I wanna say to you this morning. The way that God begins to make it plain is what he gives to Ruth in this man, Boaz, that she just happens to stumble upon his field. And last week we said this, right? Nothing happens to happen, right? God in his providence guides her there, leads her there. And so as she shows up, what she receives from Boaz is this, is God's favor in the flesh. God's favor in the flesh. Now look, at, look, look with me in the text. In verse two, it says that Ruth set out to glean in a field belonging to someone in whose sight she would find favor. Now that word favor in verse two is the Hebrew word that's translated elsewhere as grace. That God's, somebody's, somebody would have a favorable disposition to Ruth in her position. That she is a poor, widowed foreigner who is an alien, not a part of God's covenant people from birth, would find grace in the eyes of a gracious landowner where she might glean a little bit of grain to provide for her mother-in-law. That's what she's setting out to look for. She's looking for favor. She's looking for grace. And so she sets out into the fields looking by faith, looking for grace. And, and like we said last week, nothing happens to happen. So she shows up in the field belonging to Boaz, who is of the clan of Elimelech. Elimelech was Naomi's deceased husband who was buried back in Moab. Nothing happens to happen. And then Boaz rolls onto the scene from Bethlehem and he greets his workers and immediately he inquires because as he's scanning out across his fields, he sees this young lady whom he has never met before. And he says, whose young woman is this? In other words, who's she attached to? Who does she, who, whose family is she a part of? And the, 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 the foreman of the field comes back and this is what he says to Boaz whenever he inquires of her identity. He says, she is the young Moabite who returned with Naomi from Moab and she's been here since early in the morning without any break except for a short little bit of a rest. Now the commentators are divided here on what's just happened. Has Ruth shown up and begun to glean already or has she shown up and still waiting for permission to glean? Verse seven is notoriously hard in the Hebrew to translate. And commentators are split on one of those two options. Here's what I think is happening. I think she shows up and she makes a bold request because not only does she ask to glean behind the reapers, which we said last week was kind of in the corners of the fields that God had prescribed to be left there for those who were widowed and poor and, and fatherless and orphaned. God had prescribed there to be grain left for them to come by and collect and provide for themselves. Or they, they, when the reapers would drop it, they weren't to turn around and pick it up but just leave it there for the reapers or for the gleaners to come along and pick up. 
She doesn't just ask for that. She says, not only can I glean behind the reapers, but can I also gather from among the sheaves? Now, the sheaves were the bundles of grain that had been collected by the reapers, and they were laid in the field, and then they were put onto the backs of donkeys that were carried to the threshing floor. She says, not only do I want permission to come and glean in the corners of the edges of the field or come behind the reapers, but the stuff they've already collected and bundled up, can I collect from that as well? It's a bold ask that she makes, and so the foreman doesn't grant her request. And so she's standing there persistently waiting for the owner of the field to show up. And when he does, how does he respond? Oh, my daughter. Oh, my daughter. You've come to the right place. Right? Do not go to another field. Do not go chase after other reapers, but stay here and follow my young women, these young women who are working in my fields, and glean with them. Collect with them. Don't go anywhere else looking for provision. He commands his young men to keep their hands off of her. In a day in which women were abused and mistreated, in the days of the judges in which things were dark and depraved, he commands his young men to keep them hands, their hands to themselves. Do not lay a finger upon her. Do not touch her. In fact, in the end of chapter two, when Naomi says, listen, listen to what he has said. Follow his instructions. Don't go to another field because you might be assaulted there. Like that was a real possibility in these days in Israel. And so Boaz says, don't touch her. Allow her to glean. In fact, when she's thirsty, allow her to drink from the water that you have drawn and brought up. At mealtime, he invites her to the table to, and, and, and to eat with his workers. And he treats her like one of his servants, even though she was not one of his servants. And she's absolutely astonished and blown away by the favor or the graciousness of this man, whom all she knows about him at this point is that his name is Boaz. She is astonished by his graciousness. So she eats, and whenever she's done, she takes her little doggy bag, a styrofoam box piled up with leftovers, along with the 22 liters. That's how much grain that she had gleaned that day and beat out. 20, think of it, 22 one-liter bottles that she carries home to Naomi along with her Chinese takeout. And she shows up back home and she's got all this grain and the leftovers and Naomi is just astonished at the super abundant provision that comes walking through her doors. And she says, where did you work today, my daughter? Who noticed you? And she says, this, this guy named Boaz. <laughs> and, she's, and, 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 and you can almost... You can almost see through the black and white on the page, Naomi's eyes light up. And she says, may, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken both the living, you and I, and the dead, Elimelech and Malon. The, the, stay with him. Do not go anywhere else, my daughter. And so she continues to work there all of the harvest until it is finally complete. Now listen, in verse 20, whenever Naomi says, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead, Naomi is pronouncing a blessing upon Boaz because Boaz, Boaz's kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. Naomi has yet to acknowledge that the Lord's kindness has not forsaken 
stake in her. She sees this chesed, the loyal, covenant, faithful, kind, love, and mercy, and grace embodied in this man, Boaz, but she's yet to say the Lord, she will eventually, but she's yet to say the Lord's kindness has not forsaken us, but Boaz's kindness has not forsaken us. But there is someone in chapter two who wants you to see that this kindness that Boaz is showing to Naomi and to Ruth is ultimately the favor of God in the flesh. And that's the author. See, because when you're living this story, you're not privy to all the details that you are when you're reading it, are you? Nothing happens to happen. And when, when Ruth shows up in Boaz's field and he shows her grace and favor and she's, he's gracious towards her, that is the favor of God coming to her in the flesh. In other words, here's what's going on. Naomi and Ruth, are, are the, 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 the favor is coming to them and it's coming through Boaz, but it's coming from God. To them, through him, from God. It's Favor in the flesh. Boaz is the conduit of God's compassion in the life of Ruth. Do you know what a conduit is? Most of you do. Some of you work in construction and building. You know exactly what a conduit is. It's this, it's this, this channel that carries Right? Think of an electrical conduit that runs through this building or runs through our, our, our landscape as it carries power from its source to its point of application. It's a conduit. Right? The conduit in and of itself is powerless, but there's power coming through it. It's being channeled through it. And that's what Boaz is functioning as, as a conduit of the compassion, favor, and grace of God in the life of those who are in need. And I want you to know something, that God still works that way today. Do you know that? He still works that way today. Right, the favor of God for us, the, the, uh, having a favorable disposition from God, having God's grace in our lives, for us oftentimes is a very abstract concept. And so what God often does is he puts, it, he concretizes it and he puts flesh on it. And the the way that he does it is through the lives of people who have received it themselves. And so what I want us to see this morning is this, is that one of the ways that God wants to use your life, one of the ways that God wants to work through your life is that he wants you to be a conduit of his compassion, of it flowing from him and to others, particularly those who are in need. But the only way that your life will ever be that kind of conduit and the only way that you will ever be able to ride that, that roller coaster, because listen, whenever you finally say, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give, I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I'm gonna set my feet on his path. I don't know if he's gonna make it plain for me here and now or if he's gonna make it plain for me then and there, but I'm gonna follow him, I'm gonna honor him, I'm gonna obey him. Whenever you set your feet on that path, then God works through your life to bless Bless other people. You become a conduit of his compassion and his grace and his favor. You become some of God's fleshly favor in the lives of other people. But the only way you're able to do that is if you first receive it yourself. You see, back in chapter one, one of the things that we saw in chapter one was Ruth's kindness to her mother-in-law. 
The center of her kindness was her confession, her conversion to Naomi's God when she says, your people will be my people, your God, my God. And I want you to listen to how Boaz interprets Ruth's confession in that moment. Look in verses 12 and 13 of chapter two. See, see, see Ruth Ruth demonstrates this kind of kindness, that the same kind of kindness Boaz is demonstrating. Right? They're a match made in heaven. <laughs> right? they're, they're, they both have this in, incredible character and covenant loyalty and kindness they're demonstrating. But I want you to consider where this is coming from in their, both of their lives. Look in verses 12 and 13 of Ruth chapter two and listen to what the text says whenever Ruth asks this question to Boaz, why have you taken notice of me? Why have you been so gracious to me? Why have I found favor in your eyes? And listen to his response. He says, everything that you've done for your mother-in-law since returning from Moab has been told to me. In other words, I'm privy to all those things that you have done, the way that you've shown kindness and loyalty to your mother-in-law, I've heard about that. And so may the Lord repay you a full reward. But then listen to what he says next. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now the Christian life, listen to me church, the Christian life, we've said it before and I'll say it again, it is not lived uphill. It's lived downhill. And what I mean by that is this, is that it's not that Ruth worked really, really hard to show kindness to her mother-in-law and then God said, I will make you my own. No, it's that she fled to God and became his own and out of that downhill flowed all of this risk and all of this kindness to her mother-in-law. It flows downhill, not uphill. That's how the Christian life works. That's how this, this idea of being a conduit of God's compassion in the lives of other people works. It's not that God goes, you know what, I'm gonna reward you for all the good things that you've done and I will shelter you under my wings. No, whenever you, you flee to God for shelter under his wings and when you find safety and security and provision and refreshment there, then you say, I'm gonna risk it all for the sake of other people and pour my life out for them because I've got somebody who's taking care of me. See, it's a beautiful picture in verse 12 of the wings of God. It's picked up elsewhere in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 32, across the Psalms. And it refers over and over again to this place of provision, this place of protection, this place of safety or security, that God would be this for you in your life. In the same way that a mama eagle spreads her wings out over her eaglets and she shelters them from the storm. She shelters them from the elements. She shelters them from all the dangers. Everything that would seek to prey upon them, she protects them from and then she feeds them from her mouth and provides for them. And that's the image that is picked up on here that God is the one who covers us with his wings for safety, security, protection and provision, refreshment, joy and hope even in the most disparaging of situations. 
And Boaz says, you have come in your confession to make Naomi's God your God by faith in him that he has sheltered you under his wings and out of that has flown this risk, this compassion, this care for your, your mother-in-law. And because you've come to take refuge under God's wings, may he reward you. See, unless you experience it and taste that for yourself, you will never become a conduit of God's compassion because you will always be too concerned with self-preservation. You will always be too overly concerned with protecting yourself, providing for yourself, not seeing God as your provider, not seeing him as your protector. And so if I've got him sheltering me, I can be a part of his, con- I can be this conduit of compassion in other people's lives because my life is no longer about me. And so he says the way that you experience, you become this favor in the flesh and the lives of other people is by running, first of all, by running to God for refuge. That you run to him for refuge. But then the second thing, the second way that we see in this text that you become this kind of conduit of compassion in lives of other people is this. Is that you develop what, 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 I, what I call, a, and we're gonna kind of push on the point of application here, what, what I would call a, a, a trickle-down faith. All right? Now stay with me for a minute. All right, trickle-down, that, that term originated in, in, in economics theory, like back in the 70s and 80s. And it was an economics theory here in our nation that said, listen, if you give tax cuts and benefits to the wealthiest among the society, if you lower their tax burdens for business owners and the, 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 the very wealthy, then here's what will happen is those benefits will trickle down through all the layers and stratas of the society. So they will move from the top of the society down to the bottom of society and everyone would benefit because new businesses would be started. More capital and influx would come into existing businesses. Those who are unemployed could get a job. Those who are underemployed could move up in other jobs and they could become upwardly mobile so everyone would benefit as things flowed from the top down to the bottom. Right? That was the economic theory called trickle-down economics. And listen, while that theory of economics might have be, be debatable, right? its merits might be debatable, right? the reality is that what Boaz exhibits here in chapter two is what I would call a trickle-down faith. In other words, it's a, his life is saturated by God. He has a God-saturated life. So that there's no corner, nook, or cranny of his life which is off limits to God. Right, you begin to see this in, the, in, in, in Ruth chapter two. Like his life, it, it, from, 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 from his faith, his, his declaration of faith in Yahweh, it, it trickles down onto every appendage, every interaction, every conversation. It's not a, it's not a, a Sabbath only kind of faith where he shows up and sings some songs and he, he hears from the Bible and then maybe he goes out to lunch with some friends and then the rest of the week he just kind of lives as his own God, as his own king, as his own ruler. But he's submitted to God in all things and look, when he shows up to, to, and talks to the workers in the field, listen to what he says. He says, may the Lord be with you. Like, like that's how he greets his workers. Right? He didn't show up and say, hey, give me a rundown of the reports. How much productivity have we had today? How, like, how far along are we? How much do we have left? Like, what, what do we need to do? 
He shows up and says, may the Lord be with you. And his workers return with this same blessing. The Lord bless you. Even the way that he greets people. If he greets people in that way, what must the rest of his life look like? Well, we get a glimpse into it here. Because what you see in Boaz is that Boaz is one who lovingly expresses the law of God. Listen, some of you, when you hear the law of God, you th- your eyes kind of glaze over, you go, man, that's just like a, lot of, like a to-do list, right? But what Boaz, what Boaz expresses here is that God's law is a, is a loving law. Look at, look at the examples of it in Ruth chapter two. And look at what he says. When, when Ruth shows up, the foreman is reluctant to give her permission to gather among the sheaves. But Boaz says, listen, it, it, when you get down to verse 15 and 16 of Ruth chapter two, she, he actually says to her, when she goes back out after mealtime to glean some more, he says, listen, allow her to gather from among the sheaves and do not rebuke her. Do not stop her. Allow her to collect as much as she would like, as much as she can carry. Right? He gives her permission to glean. He commands his young men not to touch her. It's all actions of grace. God had made a provision for the poor, the orphaned, and the widow in the, in the law of the Old Testament, but that comes to life in the flesh of Boaz as he lovingly moves towards Ruth, one who was in need. This is one of the ways you know the character of a man, or a woman for that matter, right, of a human being, one of the ways you can test their character is not by how they relate to the upper crust of society, but how they relate to those who are down and out, how they relate to those who are without anything, because those in the upper crust of society can always do something for you, and those who are beneath you can rarely do anything to benefit you. All you can do is something to benefit them. That is the test of a man's character. How does he relate to the poor? How does he relate to the needy? How does he relate to those who can do nothing for him? And we see Boaz moving towards Ruth in all of her need, caring for her, providing for her, considering her. In other words, there is no area of his life in which God's grace is not shaping the way that he acts and conducts himself as he comes under God's law and moves towards others with love. See, Boaz has this trickle-down faith. If you think of your life, of your life as as a river channel, as a river system, Right? And, and your life is kind of this main channel running through where everything that kind of feeds into that, all these tributaries from the headwaters down to the delta. Right? You got all these tributaries dumping water and teeming with life that move into this main channel. As it, and then it branches out down where it dumps into the larger body of water in what's called a delta and all these little fingers at its point of termination. But listen, if you begin to, if if your life is this river system and you begin to wall up and dam up the tributaries that are flowing into it, then what you're gonna do is you're gonna affect the life of the delta because you're not gonna have the nourishment flowing down into the main channel and down into the point of termination. You're gonna affect the life in the delta. You're gonna affect life upstream and you're gonna affect life downstream. And see, what happens in many of our lives is that our faith never really trickles down into some areas. Right? I heard an illustration a while back by, by a, a former pastor in New York. He said his wife, when she thought of gospel ministry, she thought of it as an old Coke machine. 
Right? You, ever, you remember what it was like to have a, those old Coke machines that before they took dollar bills or before you could swipe a debit card and a 20 ounce came rolling out? Right? You put a bunch of quarters in, okay? And you put, you know, it was like, like 75 cents, as was when I was growing up, 75 cents for a Coke. So you put, you know, three quarters in, right? And then you put the one quarter and you hear it drop. You put the second quarter and you hear it drop. And all of a sudden you put the third quarter in and it gets stuck. You ever had that experience? Yeah. <laughs> right? And so what do you do? Right? You start shaking the machine, right? So laying all your body weight into it, trying to rock that puppy back and forth to make that quarter drop so that eventually your Coke or your Dr. Pepper or your Fanta or whatever it is that you are thirsting for that moment comes rolling out of the dispenser. And she said, that's kind of what gospel ministry is like because the gospel goes in, but sometimes it takes a while for it to drop in some areas of our life and begin to shape the way that we do things like the points of termination in our life, the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we act. It takes a while for it to trickle down. Sometimes it gets dammed up upstream and it's, it's, not, it's not dumping into this particular tributary area of our life and it gets quarantined off. Are there quarantined areas of your life right now from the grace of God where it's not trickling down? Listen, if there are, then it will, it will minimize your ability to be a conduit of God's compassion in the lives of other people. And for some of us, listen, for some of us, we could talk about all kinds of areas that might be walled off or dammed up this morning, but for some of us, it's in the area of our identity. See, the grace of God, we, 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 we think we've come to understand who God is, but that has yet to trickle down to our understanding of who we are. And, and listen, I want to tell you something. I, the Holy Spirit has to shake me sometimes <laughs> to cause that quarter to drop. Listen, I grew up in, in, a, in, a, in a home with two loving parents who raised me the best way they could to the best of their ability. But listen, oftentimes, oftentimes the kind of love that I experienced in my home was a very transactional kind of love. Right, it was you perf when you performed well, then you were rewarded. When you performed poorly, then you were punished. And oftentimes, it wasn't just like, we, we have consequences in our home. I just want you to go, go ahead and be clear about that. We have consequences in our home for our kids whenever they rebel and disobey. But what we try not to withhold from them is our affection and our love. And oftentimes, I felt like that was being withheld. And so I had to perform in order to receive that. And what that did in my life was it created this wall it created this dam. It created this place where even when I came to faith in Jesus, it's taken 25 years for God to begin to sh just shake and the Holy Spirit shake to get that quarter to drop in my life in the area of my identity. That my identity is not based on my performance. See, as a, as a kid growing up, whenever I, in that kind of environment, what I, what I tried to do is excel in certain areas so that I would be affirmed and I would receive love and affection. And so I tried to excel in athletics. So I became a baseball player, played on all-star teams, worked my fingers to the bone in order to receive affirmation and love. 
I became a long distance runner, right? And, and, and from just sucking wind the first day of cross country practice of high school, when I went out for the team to finishing in the top 5% of all the runners in the state of Louisiana by my senior year, I worked hard because I wanted to be affirmed in athletics. That was my identity and I threw myself into it. When I went into college, I threw myself and my identity into my academics because if I could perform well in the classroom, I'd receive attaboys and pats on the back and I would be affirmed by my professors and by my parents. When I graduated from college and seminary and, and as I moved out into vocational ministry, it shifted from athletics, to, from, from athletics and academics to achievement, to ministry achievement. That's how I would be affirmed. That's how I would know that I mattered. That's where my identity would be. And God has been shaking me by the, the Holy Spirit's been shaking me to get that quarter of the gospel to drop in that area of my life for 25 years. And listen, I want to go ahead and be clear. There are some days where it's still hung up somewhere. I don't know if that's your experience or not. I don't know if it is or you're not, but listen, here's what I will say is that if it is, if that quarter is still hung up there, it will be detrimental in your ability to be a conduit of God's compassion in the lives of others because you will always be insecure about who you are. If you're not allowing the gospel to shape who you are. That I'm not in with God because I have performed really well, but I have standing with God because he has performed in my place. Because he has excelled for me. In the sending of his son who lived a perfect and sinless life, who died as, as, as the punishment for my sin, who was raised from the grave, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, that's where my identity is. That's the only place of security for me. That's the only place where I can be protected from my own, from myself. Anybody ever feel like you need to be protected from yourself? Most of us in the room do. Just gonna go ahead and be honest. Right, that, Ruth, listen, Ruth did not, she did not, Receive God's favor because she performed well. She received God's favor because she came to him in her neediness and acknowledged that she needed him and he covered her under his wings. And once she found that security and that safety and that protection and provision, she was able to move out toward her mother-in-law. And the same is true for Boaz. It flows downhill, not up. Are there areas of your life right now where you have quarantined God from? You have cut him off from? Or is your faith moving from the headwaters to the delta with all the tributaries flowing into the channel to teem with life? I want to end this morning by saying this. Naomi makes a phenomenal statement at the end of her declaration in verse 20. When she says, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. And then she adds, for this man is one of our redeemers. This man, God's favor in the flesh is one who is able to redeem us. And I, we're gonna get into more of that next week, but I want you to know something. Is that you, you, 
You, if you're a Christian in the room this morning, you are a recipient of God's favor in the flesh because he has not left you without a redeemer. As we read earlier in Ephesians chapter one, that it is in Christ that we have redemption of our sins. It's in Christ that we experience the favor of God coming to clothe itself in human flesh. In Philippians chapter two, we're told that Christ, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but, but, but took on himself the very nature of a servant, made clothe himself in the likeness of man. He came in flesh to show you favor. Have you received that by coming under the shelter of his wings this morning? If you have not, you will never, never be able to be a conduit of God's compassion in the lives of others. And for some of you, that's your first step this morning, is to receive his protection, to receive his provision, and come under his wings through faith in Jesus Christ. For those of you who have, but the quarter's still hung up somewhere in an area of your life, here's what I want to encourage you to do. When you leave this place today, leave in a disposition of prayer before God. Maybe even as we sing our closing song, that you would petition him and ask him, God, would you cause that quarter to drop in my life? Would you burst through that dam or that wall that is, that, that is keeping me, keeping the gospel of grace from affecting this area of my life? Maybe it's not your identity. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's how you view your body and use your body. Maybe it's how you, maybe it's your, your purpose in life, your great aims and goals. Maybe it's your relationships with other Christians or other people who are in your life right now. Maybe it's your marriage and that quarter needs to drop there so you become a gracious spouse and not a nagging or controlling spouse. I don't know where it needs to drop for you. I'm pretty clear on where it needs to drop for me. And I want to invite you to pray with me that it would. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we come in our neediness petitioning you for your grace. Father, for those who have yet to take the step of trust in Christ, have yet to cross the line of faith and come under your wings for shelter and security, protection and provision through faith in Jesus. I pray this morning that this would be the day for them. That you would be gracious to save and show yourself mighty and strong. And Father, for those who have yet to have the, the, the quarter of your grace drop in an area of their life, God, may they cry out to you today and may you be faithful to answer their prayer. That you be gracious to them. For those who have built their identity, perhaps on their achievements, on their excellence, on their earning potential, on how good of a parent they may be. For those of them who see themselves and they have issues with their body. Father, I pray that you would cause your grace to drop in their lives in a way that it never has before. It would burst through the walls that they have erected in the way that they see themselves.
And that as they experience, once again, the freshness of your grace and being sheltered under your wings, they would move out in risk to be a conduit of compassion in the lives of others as their faith just trickles down in all the areas of their life. We pray these things in Jesus' name.